Well, it's so great to see you all here this morning with us in such an awesome time in worship. When God's really calling us to lean on him and, and uh, put our faith in him and draw from him for what we need. And I hope that uh, you take that and uh, apply it in any area that you need to this week. Any area where you're like, you feel stretched thin, you feel like you're not enough, you don't have enough, or that the, uh, it doesn't seem like answers are coming, uh, trust in God. The answers may not come the way you want, but he will lead you, he will guide you, and he will bring you where he wants you to go. And that will be great. And again, we would love to see you if you're new. Uh, come out to the, the luncheon afterwards. We'd love to get to know you a little better, tell you about what it looks like to be involved here, everything like that. That'll happen shortly after the service because once the service is done, if you're new here, you'll find out. We like to linger. We like to hang out and talk and get to know each other better, so the lunch will follow that. Uh, a long time ago, a long time ago, it seems like, uh, I'd gone tree planting after a year of university. After my first year of university, I was like, okay, I need to just go and have an adventure tree planting. So I went out to the Alberta, BC Rockies, the whole chain hopping back in between the provinces, depending on where the, the, uh, the site was, and I was tree planting in there. It was such an amazing experience for me. So much so that uh, after my, the season was done and I came back to Ontario, I was set on returning back out west to the mountains to spend more time there because it was just so beautiful. Anybody here spend time in the mountains, live in the mountains for a period of time, whatever? It's amazing, isn't it? It's breathtaking. Uh, I can see mountains from my house down across the border over, you know, the small mountains down by Lake Placid and things like that, but uh, it's not the same. Not the same as waking up and seeing those jagged peaks outside your window. So anyways, I got back to Ontario and I bought a car with a friend. A friend and I, he, uh, we'd both done, uh, we were both taking a, a year off type of thing after a year of school. So we were like, let's go out west, back out west again. And so when the fall hit, we got into our car and started driving out west with all of our earthly belongings packed in a 1987 Mercury Topaz. I know, eh? Luxury vehicle. That's right. We had no plan. We had no contacts in, in the area we were going. We just had hope, a dream, and uh, CAA triptychs. Anybody remember those? Those triptychs, and you could unfold it, and they would highlight the path for you. We had gone to CAA, and our parents made sure we had CAA. They didn't want us traveling without it. But we had them draw out and highlight on the map the path that we were going to take from, at that time, Peterborough, all the way to Banff, Alberta. So we had all those triptychs getting us through every province on the way there, and we just went for it. And by God's grace, we got jobs right away. We drove into town, we got a campsite, and then started handing out resumes and got a job within an hour. So it was amazing. By again, again, by God's grace. That's a story for another day. But upon securing jobs and being able to find a real accommodation, not live in a tent in the campground. Um, we started going like, let's explore the area now that, that we're secure. And right at the entrance of Banff Village, if you've ever been there on your way coming in from Calgary, there's a beautiful mountain right at the front of the village. And if you're at, if you're at, uh, at the 
the resort, like the big hotel at the other end of Banff, you look down Main Street and that mountain is right there and it looks really picturesque. If you've seen any postcard of Banff, you've probably seen this mountain. But from the area where we were living in, the view of it was this nice rolling treed hill that went up and then after that you saw the trees clear out and it was just a nice easy like line up to the top of the mountain. So my friend and I were like, time to climb a mountain. It's time to climb a mountain. So we decided we were going to go for it. So we had to cross the Trans-Canada and then we, we uh, crossed over. There's like an old airport strip, like a grass airport strip. We had to run across that and then we started climbing through the trees up and away we went. Uh, and we started scrambling through that. Uh, it got, the train gets much steeper as you would expect, you know, but we keep pressing on undaunted. And as we ascended, uh, we thought we were reaching the pinnacle because it was like we were going up some steep stuff and whatever. We thought we were getting to the pinnacle. And when we got there, we realized that there were two more sets to go, right? That what we could see from the ground that we thought was the pinnacle was not quite the pinnacle. Uh, and we had two more pinnacles to go to get to the very top. And we were like, should we try this? So we do it. We kept going. We got to the next pinnacle. And we were about two thirds of the way up, uh, maybe three quarters of the way up the mountain. And uh, we could only make it a little way, a little farther before we had to stop because the route we had taken is not a route that anybody usually climbs that mountain. They usually climb it around from the back side of the mountain where it's much easier to get there. But we tried the front side and is not really meant for climbing, especially when you go pretty much dressed like this. That's what we went with. Um, and so we turned around and we had a beautiful vista and we were like, you know what, let's just make the best of it and do this. Uh, because our, our view was gorgeous looking out over, over the whole valley down below it. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. Um, but our view also looking down on the route we would need to get down the mountain looked very different than the view we had coming up, right? When you're looking up a mountain, you're like, oh yeah, I can just climb up there, climb up there, get there, and I'm done. When you're looking down a mountain, you're like, I can't see any way down <laughs> other than falling. <laughs> That's the only way it looks like I can get down off this mountain. And it's much harder to pick your route. And the same route is not as easy to get down as it is to get up, right? And so we were like trying to navigate how, how to get down from this mountain. And uh, great job on us. We probably decided to go in the morning, but didn't really get out there till about noon. And that's a really bad time to start climbing a mountain. Because by the time we started to go down, the sun's starting to set. And if you know, if you've been in the mountains at all, the sun sets rather quickly behind the mountain, across from the mountain that you're at. And so we were quickly trying to get down this mountain. Treacherous descent that involved big boulders falling near us and all sorts of craziness, which is stories for another day. Um, but we finally reached the tree line. But by the time we reached the, reached the tree line, we were in complete darkness. And we had no supplies, no nothing, no flashlight, no phones, no nothing. And we were just hoping to catch glimmers of the village of Banff at night, the lights of the city. And if you've been there again, you know that they're like, 
we don't like light pollution. So there's not a lot of light, actually. And you're like trying to see glimmers of light through things and make our way through. We eventually got home and made our way safely. But let me tell you, viewing an identical, identical location uh, from, only, from one perspective versus another perspective, it's remarkable how different it can be, can it? You can see it from one view and everything looks beautiful and easy, an easy mountain to climb. And then you get to another perspective and you're like, this is treacherous and death-defying what we're trying to do here. This week in our reading in Heartstrong, it brings us through the book of Ephesians. And its author, Paul, he doesn't give us a very specific reason for the letter in the letter, uh, for why he's writing to the, the churches in the region, Yet we can potentially connect some dots because we see talk about the church of Ephesus and a few other places in the New Testament. And by connecting those dots, we may be able to get a fuller picture of what's going on in the church in Ephesus and what Paul's trying to do and ultimately what God is trying to speak to them and then to us. Um, And in Acts... Paul, he had spoken to the church in Ephesus because Acts, again, if, to give you a little bit of uh, understanding of how the New Testament works, you got the Gospels. They tell us the first four books of the New Testament. They tell us about the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, his life on earth, how he came for us, right? His, his life, his death, his resurrection, right? The good news of Jesus Christ right there in those four books from four different perspectives, Then it gets into Acts, and that's the beginning of the church, how the church starts to flourish. And as you read through Acts, you're going to see a bunch of the apostles and early church disciples do a whole bunch of work, all right? And Paul, the apostle, he's one of the main ones who's traveling all over the place in the book of Acts, going to all these places and doing all these visits. And then it goes into all these letters. And most of those letters, we can just track in Paul's journeys in the book of Acts. You can correlate letters in it that he writes to the church and the churches that he's writing to to his visits and times all throughout in Acts. So Acts is kind of like a timeline of Paul and what he's doing, and then all these letters are the letters he's writing during that timeline. So that's how we can, we can piece together all these things. But in Acts 20, he's writing to the church in Ephesus after he's, 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 he's left and he, he has these words to them. And he says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears." He's speaking to them from his heart, pleading with them to walk in the ways of Jesus, admonishing them what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. All right, that's what he's trying to convey there. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. And in all things I've shown 
you that by working hard in the way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul prophetically warns them after spending three years with them. He's like, listen, I've been here three years. We've been discipling you up. We've been training you in the ways of God. I've been admonishing you to the point of tears of how to live out this life in Christ. I'm telling you, though, prophetically saying there's going to be tests and challenges to come. Things that will pull at the very fabric of who they are in Christ. And he's imploring them to keep the main things the main things. To focus on what is really important. And now the Apostle Paul is under house arrest. Now, later, where we get to the actual letter to Ephesus, and he's in house arrest, and he writes a letter to the church. And again, helping them to know uh, what following Jesus looks like from a higher perspective, who Jesus really is, and how they can guard against those things that he talked about, how they can have an understanding so they have clear guardrails for what that looks like. He speaks about that higher perspective. He speaks about pursuing unity in the midst of all the things that will challenge them and that there is a clear way to resisting the powers and the principalities that desire to destroy the church. And as, as churches can fall prey to, like in Ephesus and even today, they got caught up in the day-to-day disagreements, the day-to-day things that were uh, after them. And they are, they are in danger of losing that big picture, the very thing that Paul warned them about. Paul, though, is looking for a reset for them. And he starts his inspired letter, not from the squabbles, not from the issues of the day, but from their status in Christ, resetting them, saying, again, Keep the main things, the main things, and you'll be okay. He starts by saying, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places. This is who you are. You are in Christ, and he has given you spiritual blessings. So abide in him. The first few chapters of this letter, Paul looks to establish the supremacy of Christ, how Christ has been there from the very beginning, from the foundations of the earth to the end of days. Christ is supreme and ruler of all. He wants his readers to fully understand who God is and who their identity is in him. It's because Christ is supreme over everything and the fact that they are in him that they can remain secure, that when they test all things, they can hold fast, that we were dead, enslaved. We are objects of God's wrath. We walk in disobedience, and we were under Satan's dominion, but in and because of Christ, we have new life. More so that we are alive, we are enthroned, and we are the object of God's grace, We have fellowship with Christ, and we are united with Christ. He wants them to fully understand, know, and embrace this. And he's working them up the mountain, just like I worked up that mountain, understanding the grasp of who God is, 
bit by bit so that they can turn around and see the view from there. Because of everything he had stated, there should be a direct correlation to how they lived. That there's a higher calling they needed to live up to because of that place that they rested in Christ, the place that we rest in Christ that we are united with Christ, that we sit in heavenly places with Christ. Because of that, there should be a direct correlation to our behavior. Because that is what we live in, that is who we are, it should affect our behavior. So how we look at it today depends on our perspective. If we don't see ourselves in that place with Christ, it affects our behavior, doesn't it? We don't live the way that God asks us to live because we don't see ourselves in those places. So maybe today a question could be, do you need a change of perspective? Do you need to see things from God's perspective rather than where you've been looking from? Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, he says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is what he was calling them and us to live like. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling. It simply means that we are walking consistently in our identity in Christ. Not in a dichotomous manner, one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. And that furthermore, that walking in this manner is that we view others as pursuing to walk in this manner as well. And that how we treat them, how we walk with them is believing the best in them that they are trying to do the same. That in reality, they're not separate from us. They're actually one with us because we are all one in the body of Christ. Now, it'd be wise for us to remember that the one writing this letter at this time, talking about unity and love and gentleness to each other, where is he? He's in prison. Why is he in prison? For following Jesus. Just that. But he's living it like Christ, as best he can, as Christ had called. Having that high perspective of what it looks like to live for him. He's reminding those who are free to live up to their higher calling by speech and by action. Paul is saying that to live a higher calling, to live this higher place, you've got to actually get low. Because we're called to one hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God, and Father. For better or worse, we are a family here as this, as this congregation a body, we're in this together. And how we live life together matters for our gospel witness. 
how we treat each other matters for our gospel witness, for our declaration that God has set us free, that God has redeemed, that God has restored, that we have the righteousness of Christ in and on us. How we treat each other has a direct correlation to that. To live high with one another and to have those, that bonds of peace and unity that he talks about. Don't forget that Jesus washed feet, that Jesus served, that Jesus didn't hold position and say, no, 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 I don't, I don't do that. No, 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 I don't help that way. But he got down on his knees and, and used his clothing to wash the feet of those that were supposed to be his followers, learning from him. So what does getting low look like? Getting low is a posture of humility and gentleness instead of one of arrogance and harshness. In our flesh, we may see differences as barriers and borders between us, but some differences in the body of Christ are designed by God for its unity, for its completeness, for its diversity together so that we can all be who God wants us to be. Because if you all look like me in trying to be like Jesus, it would be a very ugly Jesus. Because we would be very one-dimensional in what Jesus looks like and it would not look good. Because I lack way too many gifts that God has gifted the church in order for us to represent him well. He wrote, Paul wrote in, first, uh, in verse, chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, he said he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And when done well, apostles, they extend the gospel. They help move the gospel from one place to another like you see Paul doing in the New Testament. But when they're not healthy, when they're, when they're not healthy in how they, they share what everything is in the, in, the, in the church, what do they do? They build empires. They build their own kingdoms and not the kingdom of God. We can see enough examples of that in our culture today of kingdom building versus, of personal kingdom building versus building the kingdom of God. Prophets. When they're submitted to the body and, and to God, they know God's will. They understand and can discern where God is leading a group. But when things aren't healthy, they may know truth, but they're not actually concerned with the feelings, the feelings of others, of how their words may feel when delivered, maybe too harshly or, or just, you know, cutting it straight. They're unconcerned with how it feels evangelists, when it's good and they're a part of the body of Christ, they can recruit people to the kingdom with a grace and with a power that others envy. But when it's bad, they tire of the work of sanctification. They tire of the discipleship process. And all they want to do is get people in, but there's no disciple making. There's just a salvation step. Shepherds, they can nurture and protect the flock when things are good and they have the rest of the church, the rest of the body in balance. But when it's bad, they lose sight of the lost because they're just caring for those that are just here. 
And they're too tender. They're too tender in how they lead that out. And teachers, teachers can understand and help explain God's word to make it easier for everyone to understand. But when it's bad, information is the only formation. It's all just head knowledge and never goes any deeper. It's all just things that we know, but it's not things that we practice. And this is why Paul appropriately calls all of this the work of ministry. Because it's hard work to be the body of Christ. It's hard work for us all to give and lean on each other and each other's strengths to be what God calls us to be. With Jesus as our head, we are to see each other's roles and purposes with gladness and submission to each other. So if we posture ourselves in humility and gentleness towards each other, the next part pulls at our unity, which is addressed. Because he continues when he says all those things, all those apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all of them are there for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Doesn't this sound like familiar to what he warned them about? that there's a process that they need to engage in in order to protect themselves from the very things that he said would come. There's going to be wolves that come in. There's going to be people from within your own group that try to tear you apart. But there's a process that you can actually do that's going to make, make you okay, that's going to put you in a place where they don't destroy you when they do come, because they will come. Rather, speaking the truth in love We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Whether it is the church, the whole church, or a family, The unity in the body under Christ's lordship, it requires a new paradigm of love, submission, and mutual benefit. But we have to have a real moment of honesty today. Some things in our lives, they take a lot of time to grow and to heal, don't they? We can go go through a lot of things and it takes a while to grow through it. There's a healing process There's an understanding process of what happened and then a releasing process of how we move forward. There's some things that take time to grow. Other things in our lives that take too much time to grow, it's because we don't actually want to grow up. We just like being where we are. This isn't, and that's not a childlike faith. It's actually the opposite. It's just being a child when you're called to become an adult in Christ. It's when God clearly speaks to us about doing something and we delay. We put it off. 
we refuse or we excuse away why we haven't changed. It's almost, it almost always starts small, though. You will, will you get up earlier and spend more time with God? Maybe he puts it on your heart that you need to get up a little bit earlier in order to spend time with him. And you haven't. You just pushed it off. Will you work on your health or your hygiene? Will you quit a vice? Maybe it's alcohol, smoking, social media, food-related issues, whatever. Will you quiet the voices that inform you and build your opinions to hear from God? Will you get your finances in order? Will you give regularly to your local church? It could be small, quiet things that God is leaning in on you to say, this is something I need you to take another step in. This is something I need you to really focus in on. And our hearts are like, ooh, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that one. But that's our immaturity that doesn't say, God, you just, you just called me higher. So my next step is to get higher. My next step is to go another step up the mountain. And instead we say, you know what? Like the view from here is good. I don't need to get any higher. The view from here is all right. But that's just our immaturity. That's us not wanting to actually grow up in what God has for us. And many times God whispers these things quietly to us. And if we're obedient, that's the end of it. We just keep processing and growing and maturing in Christ. But if we're stu- stubborn, we, and we are a bunch of stubborn humans, aren't we? And we often delay our issues or justify our issues and why changing is unnecessary or impossible. But that's when God, he gets other believers involved. And they lovingly share truth with us, with us about where things are at. And if our posture in the church is to remain humble and gentle, what does that look like as, a, as adults? What that looks like is maturity in Christ is speaking and receiving from others the truth in love. God wants you to move forward and he will first and foremost whisper to your heart what he wants you to do. And if you have a hard time listening to him directly, he'll probably get somebody else to say it. And they're human and they're not gonna say it as as lovingly or as nicely as God will. And it will be a lot more embarrassing because it exposes you because God has given somebody else knowledge that you need to change. How do we respond to that? How do we receive that? And how do we share that in a loving way? Those are big things. How are you at speaking truth in love to other Christians? And how are you at receiving truth in love from other Christians? See, confession is speaking the truth and love about yourself to others. And exhortation is speaking the truth and love about others to themselves. It's about calling people higher, not exposing them. It's not about exposing them for their weakness and their pain and their suffering or their their disobedience, but exposing them so they can be called higher. It's about lifting them up. People of humility are confessional people. And people of gentleness exhort others well. To live our higher calling in Christ, we need to get used to getting low. 
to serving in this way. Getting low is how we actually grow up to become more like Jesus. And we know we've gotten low when others see more humility and gentleness in us. And again, remember, we're tying humility to being confessional and gentle with exhorting. We stay low when we practice that confession and exhortation. So final question. What do we, why do we do all this? Why do we focus on this, on the, on the maturing process? Why can't we just let you be you and just figure things out on your own? All right, why do we do this? What is the point? Remember where we started in Acts. Paul warning them of what will come. How their understanding of God would be challenged by outsiders and wolves within. And how God was, or how Paul was modeling steadfastness in theology and humility, gentleness, and serving. Remember that? Because then we're moved to Paul's letter, doubling down again on how to walk out their faith and withstand the fiery darts of the enemy. And then we can fast forward to John's book of Revelation. And we hear in that book, Jesus refer to the church in Ephesus. He speaks to them about the condition of their heart at that time later on. He says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. Sounds great, doesn't it? He knows how hard they've been working and how much they've endured. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Sounds great, doesn't it? They're checking the box of what Paul said to look out for. Look out, there's wolves coming, there's people coming to get you. You got to know your theology and not take their theology. Sounds great, doesn't it? I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. They've got their theology good and you have not grown weary. Then there's the hammer coming. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore where you have fallen from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And again, this is Jesus coming. This is Jesus speaking when he says this. And he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's a heavy, that's a heavy hammer he drops on them. Your theology can be great. You can be really tight on what Scripture is supposed to be and what teachers of Scripture should talk like. You can be really good at discerning and deciphering those things and staying true to the knowledge of God. But if you abandon the heart of love that Christ has put in you, if you abandon that and you don't repent, then your lampstand can be taken away. And if we look at the words of Jesus, what do he say about lampstands, right? You are the light of the world. A lamp 
is not covered, but it's put in the room so that all can see. We don't want our lampstand removed as a church, as individuals. We want to hold both our theological integrity and going like, listen, we are not going to get off track from what the gospel is about who God is and about who we are in Christ. We're not going to let the waves of this world or, or a loose doctrine get at us. But at the same time, we are going to be humble. We are going to be gentle. We are going to call each other higher and serve each other. We're going to live high by getting low, by serving and loving and being unified. According to Jesus, the church can excel at doctrinal vigilance. And it's a good thing. But if it does not grow up, it'll be rebuked for losing its heart of love for God and others. Paul's looking to make sure that the church in Ephesus, that they have that high view of Jesus, that his supremacy is ultimate from the foundations of the world to the end of the world, combating any teaching otherwise or any pagan influences. But furthermore, he's saying that we have to have a high view of church, a high view of Christ, and a high view of what the body of Christ looks like and how we treat each other. We can say, Christ, you're up here, but if we treat the church like it's nothing, like it's not important, that each other aren't important, even though anytime you look around and catch somebody's eye, you are catching somebody who is found in Christ. And so when you look at them and disdain them, think down on them, belittle them, you are belittling Christ because they are only found in Christ. So we need to have a high view of what church is, a high view of what our serving in church does, of how we are the body and we thrive when all of the body is engaged in walking together, serving each other and holding the bond of peace together. Because when we lose love, if we don't repent, we lose our our lampstand. We are a Christian in word, but not in essence. We are a church, but then we are no longer a church of Jesus. We are childish, but we are no longer childlike. Ephesians is a book urging us to live higher by getting lower. And if this feels backwards to you, you might need a change of perspective. Because God's kingdom is not an upside down kingdom. That's what our culture is. His kingdom is right side up. And we need to figure that out. We need to understand what it looks like to be confessional with each other and gentle and humble with each other. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for how it leads us to reflect the image of Christ. It leads us to know you better, to understand you better, but it leads us also behaviorally and what that means for our everyday living, how we're supposed to treat each other, 
how we're supposed to build each other up, how we're supposed to seek unity and the bonds of peace between each other as a direct reflection of your presence here, of that glory that we, we ask to see. God, I pray that you would help us live this out, both corporately and independently. How do we each do our part and how do we all together serve each other? How do we repent where we need to repent and forgive where we need to forgive? How do we lift up and cover things? How do we do this well? We trust you, Jesus, in this process. That through your spirit, you will empower us with what we need. You will direct us where we are to go. That we will have a high view of you and the church and we will serve from a low position. Thank you, God, for leading us and guiding this today. I pray this in your name. Amen.